0: Well, good morning. I was thinking about it this week and there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the normal people who wait until the appropriate time to start celebrating Christmas, which I'm just gonna set it as after Thanksgiving is the appropriate time. And so, well, well, hold on, hold on. Those are the normal people then there are the weird people who are listening to Christmas music in July, okay? Like, we all know the people I'm talking about. And for 26 years, I have been uh, a firm member of the normal camp. Like, only after Thanksgiving will I turn my attention to Christmas. It is until this week. I switched, I jumped, I converted. I know, I, well, bear with me. So I was studying this passage for this week, and I realized that it's a Christmas passage. There are no shepherds or mangers, wise men, north stars, there's none of that. But it is still all about God coming from heaven to be with us. It's a Christmas passage. And so like I, I tried to fight it, I did the best that I could, but I couldn't help it. And just throughout the week, I found myself like singing Christmas hymns, like joy to the world, oh come all you faithful. I I just couldn't help it. And so I have to confess to you, I am now one of those weird people. Uh, So so that's kind of just what's been going on in my mind uh, this week as I've read through this passage. Uh, Like Mark said, we are beginning our series in John. And uh, if you have like one of those strings that you can hold your place in your Bible or a bookmark you're probably going to want to make use of it because we are going to be in John for a very long time. Uh, we're going to be there for the rest of 2018, pretty much all the way up to Christmas. Uh, Mark and I sat down and we planned out uh, the rest of the preaching schedule for the year. And uh, I know some of you might be thinking, um, you know, the Bible's a really big book. There's a lot in it. You know, why spend a whole eight months just focusing on this one small part of it. Um, so again, Mark and I talked about this, and I grew up in a church that uh, they preached the Bible, uh, but they didn't preach through books of the Bible. They would always have series, and so there would be you know, four weeks on missions or you know, seven weeks on the church. And I think series can be good. Um, I think they are necessary to address a cultural moment or a specific situation that's going on in the church. So, you know, here at Redemption, we're just over a year old. We're a young church. Like it was necessary for us to set aside two months to just kind of look at different parts of the Bible to gather. You know, what is what does God say about His church and what the purpose of the church is. Uh, so, so, I think series and, and jumping around like that can be helpful, uh, but but I don't think that it should be our our typical uh, daily diet when it comes to the Bible. Um, and so, I, I really. Uh, do believe that we should study entire books. And, and I, there are a lot of reasons for doing that. I, I would just like to put two before you uh, to get this kind of in your mind uh, as we go throughout the next eight months. Uh, the first one, oftentimes I think we forget that the Bible is one big overarching story, that from beginning the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, that God is telling a story and that each part of the Bible and each individual book plays a specific role in moving that story along. And so growing up when I would only hear, you know, one week from Genesis, one week from Acts, you know, three weeks in the Psalms. And when I was just jumping all around, getting a little here, a little there, like it was good, but I never put that whole picture together. I I could never see the whole picture. I would just get little snapshots. And, And so I think Uh, slowing down and focusing on just one book will help us see how that book functions within that whole big story. We'll we'll, we'll get that big picture a little better. Uh, So that's the first reason. The second reason is for uh, those of us who are trying to be serious students of the Word, I think from the outset saying that you're going to study an entire book and you're going to go from the beginning chapter to the end and not skip anything in the middle... I think that keeps us really honest. Um, That keeps us from um, picking the passages that we like and then our only picture of God is really just a God that we've made in our own image. And so I I think uh, saying from the outset that you're going to preach through an entire book, that keeps you honest, you know, because if you're going to get to pick what you read every week, um, you're probably naturally going to pick the passages that you like. And so it's, you know, it's easy to turn to Psalm 23. It's easy to turn to the resurrection passages. Like, and we should. Those are some of the sweetest passages in the Bible. Okay, But um, think about it like this. Is, it, is a parent a good parent if they only let their child eat sweets? All right, their, their kid might like it, but a good parent knows that if that child is going to be healthy, they need meat and fruit and vegetables. And so I think for us to be uh, healthy students of the Word, for us to be balanced Christians, that we have to study all of Scripture, not just the parts that, that sound good to us. We have to uh, submit ourselves to, to what God says. Uh, Paul tells us in Acts chapter 22 to study the whole counsel of God. I, I believe with all my heart, 2 Timothy 3, that all of Scripture, including the difficult passages, are breathed out by God and are useful for uh, teaching, training, correcting, or rebuking in righteousness. And so just from, from the outset, uh, preaching consecutively through books uh, helps us to have uh, a more uh, fully-orbed, uh, balanced biblical diet. Okay, And so that, that's why we're preaching through whole books. Uh, now we're going to turn our attention to uh, this book. Why this book right now? A few weeks ago, I sat down to read all of John in one sitting. Uh, it took me two or three hours, and over the next eight months, I would encourage you to do that. Do it several times. Um, just take a morning, an afternoon, a night, wherever you have two or three hours of free time, and just sit down and read it from cover to cover. Kind of get that big picture of, of just John. So I was reading through it, and then I got to chapter three, and uh, I realized that there was one theme, one word that kept popping up. It seemed like every other sentence I was just coming across this word. And that word was belief. And so this time, uh, I started over. I went back to chapter one, and this time I picked up a pen. And as I read through the whole book, every time that I came across that word believe, or belief, or faith, or some form of that word, I underlined it. And if I counted correctly, it was a lot, but I think that word occurs 98 times in the book of John, almost 100 times times. And and so this book is focused on faith, that is focused on our believing. Everything uh, that is in this book is aimed at your faith. So once you read through the whole book, if you get to chapter 20 and read verse 32, John actually gives us his thesis statement for the whole book. He says, I've written all these 21 chapters so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, And so because belief, because faith is central to what John is talking about here, um, kind of by necessity, all of our time in John is going to be evangelistic in nature. It's going to be kind of focused outward. It's going to be kind of geared towards the unbeliever. So that in the hopes that uh, as we lift up Christ and as we magnify him and just look at different aspects of who he is, that, that an unbeliever would see him and then put their faith in him. And so it's always a good time to invite your unbelieving friends to church, uh, but now is a great time. It's kind of geared uh, towards that person. Uh, but if you're a believer, if you are a Christian, if your faith is already in Christ, uh, That doesn't mean you can just check out for the next eight months. Uh, That that would be very detrimental to your soul. Um, Something I have to remind myself a lot of is that the gospel is for believers too. Uh, The gospel is never something that you graduate from. Um, You can get the ABCs, but there's still a lot of letters left to go. And so our faith is something that always needs feeding, it needs reminding, it needs teaching, it needs encouraging. And so, even if you're a believer, like this book is still for you. Your faith will be stronger over the next eight months as we go through this book. Okay, so that's we've set the table for the next eight months. We've kind of set the the overall theme for the whole book of John that it's about belief. Now, now let's set the set the table for just this passage. Our passage for today is John chapter one, verses one through eighteen. And this passage, these first 18 verses, is called the prologue of John. If you think of the whole book as like a mansion with, you know, the kitchen, the rooms, the basement, the backyard, like this, this passage is the foyer. This is like the foretaste. It kind of combines a little bit of everything from the house, and it's all jam-packed in here. Uh, Earlier this week, Lauren and I and her brother, uh, we all went to um, the Nuggets game, they played the Timberwolves, and... Uh, we got the cheapest seats we could find. And so we get to the arena and we go up one set of escalators and another one and then another one. And then we had to climb up like two more flights of stairs just to get to our seats. And, um, you know, those those are called the nosebleeds, the nosebleed tickets. Because you're so high, your your nose starts to bleed. This is a Christological nosebleed passage. Okay, A, a lot of what we read in the Gospels is about you know, what Jesus, you know, says to one person, it's kind of this really low level Jesus on the ground. This is a a nosebleed Christology passage. This is a passage that throughout the centuries the church has turned to, to learn about the nature and the divinity and some of those kind of high truths about Jesus. Okay. So I I think there are four nosebleed Christology passages in the New Testament. I I think there's this one, uh, Colossians 1, uh, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1. We'll kind of pull a little bit uh, from those as we go today. But, but this is a Christological nosebleed section. So as we read through it, just buckle up. Like We're, we're going to keep going up the mountain, all right? All right let, let's read God's Word for us today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. So each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each of them begins their gospel account, their picture of Jesus in a different way. And so Mark, he begins his account when Jesus is 30. He he jumps right into when Jesus is 30. Luke goes back a little further. He he starts when Jesus was a baby. That's the passage we usually read on Christmas, Luke 2. Matthew, that's not far enough. He goes back even further before Jesus was born. He goes to the Old Testament and shows that Jesus came from David through Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. So so Matthew basically starts at, you know, Genesis 1. But for John, he wants us to have as big of a view of Jesus as possible. He wants our view of him to be as vast and as expansive as it can possibly be. So going back to the Garden of Eden That's not even going back far enough if we're going to know who Jesus is. We have to go back further. And that's how he begins his gospel in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we know that this Word that's being talked about is Jesus. Just spoiler alert. All right, verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. It's it's a person. It's not just some abstract word. It's a person. In verse 4, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, we can identify that as Jesus pretty easily. But if he's talking about Jesus here, why not just say Jesus? Why not just say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? Like, why? It seems kind of roundabout to say that it was the word. Uh, the Greek word for word here is logos. Logos. And I, I usually don't like to use Greek or Hebrew in sermons. Usually that just sounds like someone's trying to look a little smarter than they are. Um, so I, I actually had a preaching mentor one time tell me, uh, I think we're close enough I can say this, uh, that uh, using Greek and Hebrew in your sermons, the original languages should be like underwear. They're there for support, but should rarely be seen. <laughs> okay? Okay. So that's, that's kind of how I'm coming to this. I don't usually do it, but uh, I think if we are going to understand this passage, like we, we have to understand this word, logos, but because of just how pregnant it is with meaning. It is just jam-packed with meaning. And there, there are two components that make up the meaning of this word, Lagos. And the first part of it, it means reason or logic or maybe even science. So we get our word logic from this word, logos. And the Greeks at this time, who were a part of John's audience, they believed that everything in the world was ruled and governed by this reason, by this logic. And so everything from the tide going out and, and coming back in to you know, the, the stars and the planets moving around and the cosmos to the flight patterns of birds, like the, the fruit of their crops that year, some of the Greeks thought that there was just this impersonal, faceless not even a god really, just kind of this like Star Wars-esque force that, that governed everything. And, and so John begins with a bang. He's like, you're, you're kind of right that, that yes, our universe is governed. That yes, the sea can only come in this far. It can't go any further like, you are born in this time, at this place, like, for this purpose. Like, nothing is by accident. Like, there is a purpose behind it. But it's not this faceless, ethereal, mystical force that's doing everything. It's a person. Jesus is the one who is governing this. He is God. So that word, that logos, that power that you're looking for, it's Jesus. Okay, so that's like the first half of the meaning of Lagos. The second half is all about a, a powerful self-expression. So after verse 1, where we read that Jesus is the Word, and, and verse 2, that He uh, uh, is in the beginning with God. and verse 3, it's not a coincidence that John immediately goes to the creation account. He, he goes back to, to Genesis 1. He says, All things were made through him, through this word, through this Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So so John takes us back to the beginning, to to the creation account. If you go back and you read Genesis 1, you'll, you'll notice that the word of God is given a primary importance. Ten times in that passage we read, And God said, let there be light. And God said, "Let us make man in our own image." Like special attention is giving to God speaking." All right. Have you ever wondered why God chose to use words to create everything that is? I mean, He's God. He, he can do what he wants to. He could just snap an almighty finger and we exist. He could have just gone into the eternal recesses of his mind, and we exist. But for, I think, a, a purpose, God chose to create using words. All right, words are generative. They create. They generate things. When we, we speak, things change. There, things change. There's, this, there's this transforming power about words. And, and when it comes to God's words, God's words can create worlds. He just speaks, and out of nothing, everything in the universe that has or ever will exist came to be because God said so. In Psalm 19, we read that the heavens and the earth that God made by speaking, that they declare the glory of God. That uh, day to day uh, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In Romans 1:20, we read that God's Uh, eternal attributes, namely his uh, divine power and, and eternal nature, basically who God is essentially at his heart, that those things are clearly perceived in creation. That what God has made reveals who he is. What God speaks, how he creates, reveals who he is. And so when we look out at everything that we see, when we look at those mountains and the sky and the grass and the birds, like We're seeing something that God spoke into being, and then it's as if those things are speaking back, saying, yes, I'm beautiful, but don't stop here. Keep riding the elevator up. Look at the one who made me. Look at my creator. He is the glorious and the beautiful one. Okay, so so I I think we're starting to kind of get to the heart of this word logos here. It's this reasoning, logical, ordering, governing, and it's a powerful, revealing self-expression and all of those are wrapped up perfectly, fully, and finally in Jesus. So verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If I could put it another way, Jesus is the perfect outward expression of who God is. All of his power, all of his glory, everything that he is we see in Jesus. Right, Matthew twelve tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, that the mouth speaks, that what comes out of your mouth reveals who you are on the inside. And so when we read that Jesus is the word of God, all right, that, that doesn't mean that like God, that the Father like created Jesus. Like he was there from the beginning. They're both co-eternal. Jesus was pre-existent. But when Jesus is the word of God, he is the outward expression of the Father. So, so how do we know what God looks like? I mean, verse 18 kind of deals with this problem at the very end of our passage. It says, no one has seen God. All right, he, He's bigger than we are. He's the, the creator. We're the creature. Like There are just fundamental differences that, that we can't get past. And on top of that, we're sinful. Like we, we choose to worship the created things rather than the creator. So not only is he bigger, but, but we're blind. All right, so, so, so how do we deal with this problem? How can we see God? How, how can we be with God? We have to see God based on how he has chosen to reveal himself. And he has done that fully, and he has done that finally and perfectly in his son, the person of Jesus Christ. So, what does the love of God look like? It looks like Jesus. What does the power of God look like? Jesus. What about the wisdom, the wrath, the justice, the forgiveness? Every attribute of God is displayed perfectly in Jesus. Hebrews 1, another. Christological nosebleed passage, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's like if you went up to like some wet cement and just like put your hand in it, like it now shows you what your hand looks like. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Like Father, like Son, nothing is lost in translation. If we want to know what God looks like, then we have to look at the Son. So again, John said that his purpose in writing this gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God and that by believing in his name that we would have eternal life. Earlier in John 17, he kind of defines what eternal life is and he says, this is eternal life that you would know the Father. All right, so how do we know the Father? We look to the Son. How do we come to have eternal life? We believe in Jesus Christ. And so one application here, just kind of in light of kind of this big idea that we've been talking about, Jesus as the eternal word, the perfect self-expression of God. One application is just to step back, to bask in the glory of God and just worship him for how big he is. He didn't begin at, you know, year 3 AD. He he didn't begin in the garden. He has eternally existed. There there is nothing that he has ever seen. He is God, and he is the perfect expression of who God is. So so just step back and worship. But another maybe less abstract and and more directed application uh, in light of this logos, this word is to realize the importance that your words have. All right, Words matter. Words create things. God's words create worlds. And being made in his image, our words might not be as powerful, but they still change things. Um, Whenever I hear someone say, like, oh, it's just words, it doesn't matter, like, it's not hurting anybody, like, I honestly don't get it. Um, When I got down on one knee and proposed to Lauren, I asked her a question, and do you think like the next word out of her mouth didn't matter? Like, it changed everything. Like, it was either two letters no or three letters yes, and that changed my life forever. And so, yes, our words matter. The, the way that you speak to your spouse, the way that you speak to your children, what you say, how you say it, tone, timing, all of it matters, and it creates a world. It creates a culture. Matthew 12 also says that on the final day, each of us will give an account for every careless word that we say. So as someone who has to get up and talk a lot every week, that terrifies me, to be honest. Um, but I think one application here is to simply realize the power of your words. Don't, don't use them glibly. Think about them. We have two ears, one mouth. I think God knows what he's doing. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak. It's those people who are students of the word, who submit ourselves to the word. Let's use our words carefully. So John starts out his gospel with this, you know, boom, this big idea. Uh, But we're just getting started. We have to keep climbing Christological Mountain. And John goes on to say something that will change the way that we see Jesus forever. Uh, Skip down to verse 14. Uh, we're going to skip a lot about uh, John the Baptist there. Another benefit of preaching consecutively is you don't have to get everything in one week. Next week is all about the, John the Baptist. We'll get back to it. But go ahead and skip down to verse 14 with me. We, re- we read that this word, this eternal, preexistent, perfect expression of God, word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. So here John is talking about the incarnation, which is just a theological term that we use, especially around Christmas, to say that God came down to us. And so Jesus, without ceasing to be God, he was still God, became a man. 100% God, 100% man. And John is a master when it comes to having an economy of words. He, he can say more in fewer words than probably any other biblical writer. And I think just in those four words, we get probably the best definition of the incarnation in all of Scripture, that the Word became flesh. So last week, we celebrated Easter and the resurrection. And I think... Rightly so. Most Christians have a strong understanding of the resurrection, and, and you should. You know, like we talked about last week, if the resurrection isn't real, then we are most of all to be pitied. If Jesus can't rise from the grave and overcome death, we have no hope. Like This is all that we've got. So you take away the resurrection, the whole Jenga tower falls apart. I, I think that's right. Uh, but our Christmas theology tends to be a little weaker, I think. I think it's us, it's easy for us to get caught up in the, the cultural festivities, the, the lights, the presents, the Christmas trees, just, just the winter charm. And uh, and John 1 is a Christmas passage. Again, there's no angels or North Star or three wise men, but this is still all about God coming down to us. And I think we, we really need to be strong here in our understanding of Christmas. So J.I. Packer, who's probably one of the most Influential and important evangelical scholars of the last 100 years said that the greatest mystery of the gospel, the supreme mystery of the gospel about Jesus, is not the Good Friday message of the atonement. It's not even the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. The the really staggering claim about Christ is that God became a man and dwelt among us. So earlier this week, I read about something called the Jefferson Bible. It's named after Thomas Jefferson. He was the third president of the United States. He was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and Jefferson, when he picked up his Bible and when he read through the New Testament, he didn't believe what he was reading. He didn't buy it. He thought, like, I, I can't believe in This Jesus, he's performing miracles, healing people, walking on water, resurrecting from the grave, like, men don't do this. I I don't believe this. And so he took a razor and he cut out passages, anything that he couldn't explain rationally, scientifically, according to his own understanding, And so he cut out everything to do with any miracles. He cut out the Trinity. He cut out the resurrection. He he cut out this passage that we're studying today. And so when he held up his Bible, like you could see through it. There there were gaps. And I I think it's just kind of a perfect picture of what all people from all cultures have tried to do to uh, stand above the word of God and separate wheat from chaff and say, I don't believe this. I'm God. I've written this. Rather than... Submitting to its authority and obeying what it says. But, but the reason that I think that Jefferson cut out all of those passages is because he didn't get the incarnation. He, he missed one small thing, and it just caused a domino effect where he had to reject everything. And I kind of get where he's coming from. Like, if I were to read this, like, it kind of makes sense. Like, he walked on water? He resurrected like, he's right, men don't do this. But what he didn't understand was that Jesus isn't just a man. He is 100% God, the God of all eternity, who spoke the world into existence, then entered into the world that he made, and he was God. And so, of course, he can feed 5,000. Of course, he can walk on water and heal people and raise Lazarus and raise himself. He's God. And, and Jefferson didn't get that. But, but if, if we can wrap our minds around this, that Jesus is actually God himself incarnate with us, all the New Testament makes sense. The, the resurrection is a lot easier to believe because he's God. God. So I think if we miss uh, this Christmas incarnation message, if we're not strong here, everything else can fall. So so I know it's only April. I know that we celebrated Easter last week, and it's not even that cold out, but uh, we're going to sing a Christmas hymn. And so in the next few moments, as we get ready and prepare to worship through song, like we are going to sing a song that revels in and glories in God coming To us, it might be awkward. It might be weird. Again, it just kind of—that's not where we are. It doesn't, you know, feel like Christmas. But I I think, according to this passage, like we can't confine the incarnation to December. Like the Christmas miracle should change everything, and it deserves a lot more attention than just a few weeks at the end of the year. So God became flesh. He, He robed his divinity with humanity. Uh, But we still have one more stop up Christological Mountain. And these next few words are are just as staggering. Keep reading with me in verse 14. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us, literally. that, That word means that God pitched his tent with us. And so this is a reference to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, after Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, after sin had entered the world, they no longer enjoyed that direct communion with God. They got kicked out of the garden, and then uh, we see that through the tabernacle, uh, which is just a big tent that they carried around, where you know God resided, and uh, in the Holy of Holies, where they were a little more established in the temple. But that is where God resided. That is how God dwelt with His people. Uh, but, but the problem was that communion, that dwelling, had been lost. It, it was no longer a, a face-to-face, like side-by-side, intimate communion. And so, yes, like the, the people could look to nature to see you know echoes of the glory of God. That They could read the law of Moses. They could go to the temple. But the problem with all that is that, is that it was mediated. There, there was never direct face-to-face contact. It was like kissing your bride through a veil true but it's partial it's it's incomplete and so when we read here that god dwelt among us that he pitched his tent that means that he is restoring what was lost he was restoring that broken communion that dwelling he came and he dwelt with us and it's no longer partial it's no longer mediated because in jesus We have seen the glory as of the only Father, full of grace and truth. No longer partial uh, revelations, no longer partial access. Everything that God is, is now available to us in Jesus. All right, so what? You know, Mark and I sit down sometimes and he'll look over my sermon. He'll be like, all right, Matthew, you got the what, got the content, you got the what. Now give me the so what. So here's the so what. If you're an unbeliever in the room, if you are just considering the claims of Christ, if you are wondering, how can I get to God? I'm trying to reach God. How do I find God? I got news for you. God's not lost. He doesn't need finding. He created the world. He created you. He knows where he is. You're the one that's lost. And According to this passage, the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to try and reach God. You don't have to climb the ladder, cross the bridge, pay the debt. You don't have to be moral and earn his love by your good works because he came down. He came down the mountain. You don't have to try and reach him. You don't have to try and find him. He came down to you and he is looking for you. You don't have to save yourself. So, so how do you find God? How do you dwell with God? Look to Jesus. He is God, the perfect expression of the Father from before all time through and beyond the end of time. He is how you can be with the Father. And then to the believer in the room, I think it's good to be reminded that Jesus was the first missionary, He left heaven. He left his home. He left the glory and the praises of heaven that he was rightly due. And he came and he was born as a baby. He came as one of us. He put on our flesh. He understands what it's like to be human. He came, he learned our customs, our languages, ate our food. He lived as one of us. I kind of like Eugene Peterson's translation of this. He says that God moved into the neighborhood. It's like God took up the the house two doors down. He's not far off. He came as a missionary to tell us about the Father and to reveal the Father. And then He sent us out to do the same. He uh, He sent us out as missionaries. We need to dwell with the people. All right. So we're in the world. We're not of the world, but we do have to be in it. Okay. It's not enough to just gather here. On Sundays, to study God's word, to, to worship the Lord through song, to gather and encourage one another in a faith. That's all good, but it's not everything. We gather so that we can scatter. All right, we, we have to be in our neighborhoods. We have to know our neighbors. We have to share meals with one another. We have to let the front doors of our homes be a gateway into the kingdom of God and letting our lives be smaller reflections and smaller pictures of. God and who he is. But we're not going to have to do it forever. Our days of working and praying and opening our doors and our homes are limited. Because once you do get to the end of the story in Revelation 21, you read about the old heavens and the old earth passing away and the new heavens and the new earth being established. And then we read that God will dwell with his people forever. What was lost in the garden, that communion, which has now been uh, revealed and restored through Christ, will reach its full consummation on that day. And so we work and we pray towards that day. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we worship you. You are beautiful and you are glorious because you are God and you are the perfect expression of the Father, and you are radiant. We thank you for coming, for condescending, for putting on our weak and our helpless frame. We worship you that you came down the mountain and you saved us. Would you humble us this week? In your name we pray, amen.